You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, Pippa. Hi, Karina. So today we're talking about the word capacity. Yes. I remember when we were narrowing the field for what words to cover this season, and this one came up and we were on the fence for a while Mm -hmm. because it's sort of, it's not like a sexy word. Like it's sort of gray and boring (laughs) capacity, you know? It's sort of like institutional in its way. Yeah, it's not very uh, clickbaity. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> and I know we strive for clickbaitiness. In that, our is our, that is our corner. So it, it's a bit out of, out of step. But I feel like I need to explain my thought process behind choosing capacity as a word to do because I feel like it's following me around <laughs> in a weird way. Like wherever I go, there it is making me vaguely anxious And I think it's because of COVID. I think if any word this season is really a COVID word without being a COVID word, it's capacity. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Like, it's cropping up in all sorts of spots. Yeah, like you go out to the store and you see the capacity limit posted outside now. And you open up the news and it's articles on hospital bed capacity and ICU capacity. Uh And I'm sitting in on Zoom webinars at work about like burnout and (laughs) self-care. And the word is repeated over and over. Like, what do you have the capacity for? Yeah, like, do you have capacity to take this on right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like this image of a water glass being filled to the brim, threatening to spill over. Yeah. So the word is everywhere. And it made me start to notice it more and look into it. And etymology-wise, it means what you would expect it to mean. It means the ability to hold, whether that's in a legal sense or a moral sense or a physical sense. The ability to hold it together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we mentioned the hospital better burnout connotations. But then I realized it's actually a really interesting word when it relates to aging. Mm. You sort of take your own capacity for granted. Like the average adult doesn't go around wondering if they have the legal capacity to make decisions about their day. They just do, right? Not on the good days. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But it's true, like until until you don't. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And when does that happen? Mm. Typically barring mental disability or illness or injury, it tends to happen when you're a senior and your decision-making might be brought into question or restricted. And landing on the topic of seniors brought my entire thought process on the word capacity full circle straight back to COVID. Well, yeah, because especially in Ontario and throughout Canada, seniors have kind of been a vulnerable population that's been really affected by COVID. Yeah, and it's a huge population, and it's getting bigger and bigger in Canada. It's sort of a perfect storm of the baby boom generation aging en masse, but also the average life expectancy rising and the national birth rate falling. So the Fraser Institute reported that the share of the population in Canada over 65 is projected to grow from about 18% to nearly 26% over the next five decades. So that's like a quarter of the population. And that's going to have so many consequences. And if it's not funded properly, handled properly, it will become a serious problem. Mm -hmm. If a quarter of your population are senior citizens, that means, for instance, way higher spending on health care and old age pensions and benefits and mass retirement without a big enough labor force to fill in the gaps. 
Yeah, I feel like we talk about this as sort of a gray wave sometimes I've heard. Yeah, it's called like a gray wave or um, I've seen silver tsunami, (laughs) which is alliterative. (laughs) Catchy. I guess. (laughs) So to dig into this topic, I wanted to speak to someone who's an expert on the issues facing seniors in Canada. I spoke to Laura Tamblin-Watts. She's the CEO of CanAge, which is Canada's national seniors advocacy organization. When I'm thinking about the word capacity, I go straight to the notion of mental capacity and what that legal test is. And that's probably because I'm a lawyer, but it's also because we are really struggling as a society to understand what mental capacity really means in daily life. So it differs province to province, but we'll focus on Ontario. In Ontario, when someone is calling into question your mental capacity to make decisions, it triggers what's called a capacity assessment. And that's where a health professional interviews you to try to figure out whether you can still make decisions for yourself. Oh, this kind of like puts a pit in my stomach to think about uh, happening to me or like a loved one. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine just like sitting down for a conversation like that and knowing that that's what you're walking into? Yeah, like the stakes of that conversation. My palms are literally sweaty thinking about this. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the worst job interview and exam and date, like first date, (laughs) rolled into one. And you might just leave without your driver's license. Yeah, it sounds terrifying. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, Laura really emphasized the consequences of these capacity assessments and obviously of what a huge impact they can make on a person's life. As soon as you find somebody mentally incapable of something, you strip them of your rights. It's really important to remember that you're taking away a core part of their personhood. So you can imagine some of the things that get taken away from you. If you're found incapable of managing your own finances, it means you can't spend your own money. If you're found incapable of making your own physical decisions or decisions about your body, you lose your right to make healthcare decisions, decisions about where you live or even what you eat or how you dress, you lose your right to have sex because if a person is incapable of consent, then it's sexual assault. Laura said that when we're thinking about taking away the rights of people, because that's what it is, it's so important that we only withdraw their rights to the most minimal, least intrusive level. So I guess there are like gradients to capacity, right? It's not like you're capable or you're not capable. Yeah. So a capacity assessment can find that uh, you may not be able to do some things, but you can still do other things. For instance, uh, you might need to give up control of your finances, but maybe you can still live alone. Mm. And also physical capacity, like say you can't bathe yourself. That's completely different from mental capacity. Laura emphasized to me that capacity is not a static thing at all. It's very fluid. Right. And she told me that the gold standard for capacity assessments is you get a psychiatrist who specializes in geriatrics, and they perform an initial screening test. And then, only if it's necessary, based on that screening, there's a clinical interview, and afterwards, capacity should be regularly reassessed, Hmm. right? Sounds fine. Yeah. But unfortunately, there are tons of issues plaguing the capacity assessment system. And that ideal, that gold standard, is far from being true for most people, starting right from when you try to get one in the first place. 
Laura told me that the main problem is that we have incredibly few geriatricians, like actually just over 200 across the entire country. Oh, wow. And even fewer geriatricians that specialize in mental health. Am I the only one that's very alarmed to hear there are only 200 geriatricians in Canada? Well, like you say, like a quarter of our population will be geriatric. Yeah, you are not you are not the only one who's alarmed by that. It is very alarming. We need to increase our capacity for capacity assessments. Yeah, exactly. Um, the irony of this was not lost on Laura either. What's the current capacity of our geriatric care system? Like, is the number of hospital beds and long-term care homes and personal support workers, is that on track to handle that kind of boom? No. (laughs) (laughs) We've known for decades that we were having a baby boom. You know, demography is hard to argue against. Mm -hmm. We have already talked about the incredible shortage of geriatricians that we have. We graduate all kinds of people who are plastic surgeons and cosmetic surgeons, but we don't actually graduate people with a background in geriatrics. So you can look young, we just can't be old. (laughs) We need a major sector capacity shift. People who say, oh, I want to go into health or social services, medicine and social work, those type of healthy professions, but they don't want to you know, focus on older people. I say, well, I don't know who you think that you're treating. Unless you're doing pediatrics, you're mostly taking care of older people. Okay, this is all very, very unsettling. I know. So you get an assessment. What does this process actually look like? If we're going to go into my nightmares right now. (laughs) Right. So like I said, there's a screening interview, and that could bump you to a more in-depth clinical interview, depending how you do. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a few different standardized screening tools that might be used. There's something called a mini mental status exam or an MMSE. Or there's another called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment or the MOCA. And they're meant to just bring out some red flags. It's stuff like, can you draw the hands on a clock? Can you count backwards? Can you remember a series of objects? Person, woman, man, camera, TV. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Like that. But there are a lot of concerns around bias in those initial screening tests. So as an example, the MMSE, the Mini Mental Status Exam, has been criticized by many for its presumption about different kinds of information that you would need to know. Just to tell you a funny story, I decided to subject my children who were school age at the time to an MMSE just to see how they would do. They did well, except for the drawing the hands on the clock. And I asked my eight-year-old son why he wouldn't do it. And he said, oh, mom, nobody uses these kinds of clocks anymore. We don't do analog. And I said, well, how will you have an idea about your your timings in a day? And he said, oh, well, do just what everybody else does. I'll look at my phone. And so when we think about the mini mental status exam, we also see people who may have a high university education or they cover really well or they have certain backgrounds in Western culture and they can score higher because it's set up with that basis. Obviously, the cell phone example is not an example of cultural bias. It's Mm. I mean, if anything, it's more generational bias, probably. (laughs) But she's making a point here that everyone's coming at it from their own angle, right? And Mm -hmm. their angle seems obvious to them. And I can definitely see how cultural norms might work the same way and, like, skew a screening test. Yeah. 
cultural diversity is something that's definitely in the handbook, so to speak, Mm -hmm. as something that assessors should take into account. But the reality is most people can't really accurately check their own unconscious bias, right? That's the whole point. Yeah. I was reading up about bias and capacity assessments, and something that actually came up a bunch was the issues with mental health assessments for Indigenous people in Canada. There's actually a whole report released by the Canadian Psychological Association on their response to the Truth and Reconciliation Committee's final report. Mm. And it calls the situation dire, in their words. Yeah. Something else interesting Laura mentioned is that there are developments in technology that one day might make it possible for these assessments to be done by AI, which kind of grosses me out. (laughs) Um, Like, there are firms in Canada right now developing AI tests that analyze biomarkers and speech patterns and retinal scanning and stuff like that. And it's supposed to be something that might help with the fact that we don't have nearly enough psychogeriatricians. But, ah, like... (laughs) You know, I I have to say I feel um I feel like more nervous about AI doing it than an imperfect human. Like like kind of yeah, I I can totally see why this sort of tech is being developed and it's it's for a good reason, it's to meet a really pressing need. And you can't just pull highly skilled trained psychiatrists specializing in geriatrics out of thin air, right? <laughs> yeah. And technology can do some amazing things, but Oh, my God. Like, I don't want to be 85 one day and taking a CAPTCHA test to see whether I can, like, be in control of my bank account, right? Yeah. Uh, We've been talking about this for years, but, like, blind spots and bias and algorithms and AI is a huge problem, right? It's becoming more and more publicized. mm -hmm. And when it comes down to it, like, (laughs) there are either, you know, these imperfect biased humans coding these programs or the data sets are biased that the programs are going to be pulling from, whether that's racial or or even ageism or sexism or whatever. Yeah, there's this sort of uh, technology has this shimmer of objectivity because mm-hmm. it's computing. It's, it's quantitative. But like, I mean, that just isn't the case. You go back to the beginning and the root of all of these things are biased humans, right? And this feels like a particularly messy human thing to try to yeah. put measures around. Yeah, it does. I think it would take some really, really diligent checks and balances to make sure that these AI programs are as unbiased as possible if they do start being rolled out to test capacity. But, Mm. I mean, yeah. Let's hope we got some good people working on them. I hope so. (laughs) So anyway, to move on. So you find an assessor, you get screened, you get the clinical interview, and say you're ruled mentally incapable in some way. There is an appeals process um, if you disagree with this ruling, um, but it can be pretty thorny as well. In Ontario, it's actually not too bad. There are these free informal tribunals uh, where you can appeal the results and you can have lawyers there or not. And you can get a hearing within about a week and hear results back within a day, which sounds like pretty quick. Yeah. Um, But this is not the case in many places in Canada. in, In other provinces, you basically have to go to court. And it's pretty daunting to imagine, I mean, trying to retain a lawyer and navigate a court case when you, like, don't have control of your bank account, you know, or have some mental health challenges. And, like, this thing Laura said of the gold standard being that you're regularly reassessed, right? 
But if it's so hard to get an assessment in the first place and a good assessment at that, uh, like I think you can guess how regularly and how well people are reassessed once they're ruled incapable, mm-hmm. right? I just don't think that most of us would come off our most capable in a situation that stressful. No, yeah, for sure. This whole thing is kind of making me think about um, Britney Spears' yeah, situation. right? Yes. Yeah. Um, if you're out of the loop on this, quick update. Uh, Britney Spears was placed in a conservatorship in 2008 by her father and her attorney. So this means that they were in complete control of all of her assets. Yes. In Canada, this would be called a guardianship. This was following that period in like the mid-2000s where she had a bunch of very public and publicized mental health episodes, shaving her head, etc. It was originally meant to be a temporary thing, but it was made permanent by a court in 2009. And then in early 2021, the FX documentary about her conservatorship called Framing Britney Spears came out. We all saw it. Yep. And a few months later, the New York Times wrote about a court statement that shows that she's been pushing to end her conservatorship for more than a decade. It's extremely sad. Yeah. So, you know, there's been this whole free Britney movement, this hashtag that's received a lot of attention. And I think it's really put a spotlight on the idea that your capacity can be called into question for kind of anyone. Yeah. And this is definitely more of an unusual case because the vast majority of conservatorships or guardianships are about appointing guardians for seniors. Yeah. But no matter your age, mental health is definitely also a way to get your personhood and the ability to make your own decisions revoked. Mm -hmm. And you think about things like involuntary psychiatric holds, involuntary inpatients in mental institutions. These, These things happen when you're considered a danger to yourself or others, right? Yeah. To pivot from Britney to a bit closer to home, this whole conversation also makes me think about my own parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that they're incapable right now by any stretch, (laughs) but like what's in store for them? I think we both have parents who are a bit on the older side, like compared to most of our friends, like they're around 70. Yeah. Um, My mom turned 68 this fall and my dad's 70 next March. And I know everyone sort of goes through this with growing up and having aging parents. But I think for me, uh, the pandemic lumping them into a vulnerable age group made me start to think of them as truly old people (laughs) for the first time. Yeah. For me, it was kind of, I think, when Seattle was first really hard hit by COVID and they were making sort of triage decisions based on the age 65. Yeah. And both my parents were above that age. And I was like, stay in the house. Yeah. You're not allowed to leave. Yeah. And I remember my parents kind of like scoffing Mm. and me just getting so upset because I I just had never thought of them in that way. It was really unsettling. And in the past year, I feel like my parents and I have had more conversations about their future and their mortality than we've ever had before. Like they redid their wills and Mm. I'm the executor of their will when they die. (laughs) It's weird. (laughs) And we talked about power of attorney and how I share it with my brother if they ever become incapable of making decisions. And we've been talking about the retirement and what it'll look like and what they prefer and the best case and worst case scenario. Also, they live with my 91-year-old grandmother, so they have a very immediate example of aging right in front of them all the time. Have you, like, had those kind of heavy conversations with your parents in the last few years? No, I don't think so. I feel like maybe we should. 
Yeah. No, I feel like whenever the subject of wills comes up, we kind of uh, just make jokes about it. When my mom was a teenager, there was a big portrait done of her that is quite creepy. And so oh, really? the standing family joke is just like, ugh, who's going to get that in the will? Oh my God, you have a picture of it? I want to see it. I will have to show it to you later. It's not excellent. creepy. It's a beautiful thing, but it's just very austere. <laughs> yeah, right. Austere teenage mom. Yeah. I'm kind of comforted by like having had those conversations lately and just like knowing what what it would look like. Hmm. Um, but something we talked a bunch about is like how they prefer to uh, what's called age in place. Do you know? Right. Do you yeah. know this concept? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like having enough health and social service supports and community so that you can age independently in your own home or living with family and you don't go into long term care or be kind of warehoused somewhere away from society yeah. um, as you age. And I think I can speak for most people when I say that the prospect of going into long-term care is especially frightening right now in Ontario because yeah. of all of the reports we've seen over the pandemic about like the really appalling conditions in some long-term care homes. Yeah. And I mean, those were really shocking. Yeah. But before that, like we had the Elizabeth Wetlawfer situation. It wasn't like Ontario's long-term care homes were coming into the pandemic with a sterling reputation. Yeah. And Wetlawfer was obviously like a serial killer. She killed eight seniors over the course of a decade. But the fact that she was able to get away with it for so long really points to some systemic issues in long-term care, right? But we don't have great alternatives. And aging in place is a concept that Canada as a country and society is not super good at. Yeah, aging in place or or really aging at all. Like, seniors obviously represent a very large voting block in Canada. They show up at the polls the most. And I think that you do see the power of that voting block reflected in our policy decisions in Canada. But at the same time, there are so many ways where seniors get left behind. Mm-hmm. Laura and I spoke about how seniors' issues tend to get attention before an election because they vote, right? Mm -hmm. And then because political terms are so relatively short, those long-term investments that you need to improve seniors' issues, like long-term care and capacity assessments and aging in place, all of that stuff, those become the proverbial can getting kicked down the road. Right. Although things are happening in large part because of covid For instance, after so many pandemic deaths in the long-term care sector, Ontario's progressive conservative government introduced uh, this bill in October 2021, and it doubles the maximum fines on homes that break the law. Though I've also seen critics talk about how we really need an overhaul of the for-profit system, and this didn't really curb that at all. Yeah, totally. So, like, obviously there's a long way to go, but... Laura says that in many ways, it's the pandemic that's been a turning point for ageist attitudes in Canada. I think during the pandemic, every one of us has felt that aloneness, that exclusion, what it feels like not to be able to participate in regular society. So I think that lived empathy saying, oh, look, it's bad for me and I'm in my house or my apartment or so on. I can't imagine being locked up in a 100-square-foot room in a long-term care facility. I can't open a window. I can't leave the room for upwards of 6 to 12 months. And then the second piece is, I think Canadians have finally had a bit of the curtain pulled back. And when 
We saw that military report with pictures of people lying on the floor, being in their own feces for days, starved, people dying of neglect. The image of ourselves as Canadians were rocked. We were the lowest recorded quality of life in all of the OECD countries and the worst in terms of investment for seniors care. So I think that combination of lived experience and empathy of that social exclusion for everyone combined with the shock of the military report may finally put the Canadian public on notice that, you know, this is not only just an issue that's not going to go away. This is an issue that affects all of us. Honestly, just pack me up and just send me to Sweden when I get that old, please. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, I would be down for that. Um, The Nordic countries like Sweden and Finland and Denmark, as well as the Netherlands, they're all uh, kind of famously very good at senior care and aging in place. Capacity is a really different conversation there. And um, the Netherlands is actually where the idea of dementia villages first showed up. Right. Mm -hmm. I've heard of these. Um, They're basically like residential long-term care homes that are set up for people with dementia. And they're modeled after kind of like a regular village with shops and streets and everything. So residents can safely go about a more normal life for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. There is a lot more we could be doing in this province and in this country to look after seniors or really anyone with limited capacity to take care of themselves. Yeah. And especially after this year, it's really taken on a new urgency, like Laura said. And I think people of all ages have realized how dire it really is. Yes. And I think this whole topic comes back to something we talk about on the show again and again, which is empathy towards marginalized people and voices. Yeah. And there are a lot of ways people can be marginalized, and age is definitely one of them. And I think that's a good place to leave it. I think so, too. Our show is recorded on the traditional territories of many nations, including the Wendat, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Thank you to Laura Tamblin-Watts for the interview, and thank you for listening. 